So I'm writing a novel. It's the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, once in a while, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, I read for you the short story, Vo, in its 10th draft currently, which birthed this whole novel writing project for Untitled Sword and Sorcery novel, and for reasons that I'll get into, it actually was pretty good for laying up the topic that I'll be discussing this time around, which is language and race. Two things which have a, you know, a few added facets to them when you're writing either fantasy or sci-fi. As you may recall, language played a small but important role in the story of Vo, which was, you know, the whole thing of first underlining the differences between Vo and Krog with the words that Vo didn't recognize, like dotal meaning sheep droppings or Bjerg meaning kind of a little hill that she thought, you know, meant like a horrible monster and so on and so forth. It gave me a little bit of comedy, like her stepping in the sheep poo, and it also set up what was kind of the loophole problem, you know, whatever, kind of illustrating how uh, the magician's trap for each of their respective peoples, their feuding peoples on that island, was not very well thought out because they ended up trapped on the island so long that their language started to diverge because they hated each other so much and interacted so rarely, so that eventually, over time, as Vo says in the story, they would be unable to communicate with each other, which would make it impossible to undo the trap that was supposed to, presumably, teach them to be honest and get along by sticking them on an island until they do. Which reminds me of a piece of writing advice I've brought up before that I think is very versatile. The advice, uh, strictly speaking, was if you make all members of an organization in your show or book or novel, whatever, have the same beliefs, if they all are, you know, simpatico about what to do and why they're doing it, then you are denying yourself interesting storytelling options generated certainly by conflict, but perhaps other things as well, as a result of different people in the organization believing things differently. As that goes, so does it go, I feel, with language. If you do something that is so common in fantasy writing, particularly people that I think have Dungeons and Dragons on the mind, it's having a universal sort of language or like an Esperanto that people actually use called oftentimes common or the common tongue. You know, that language everybody knows. Sometimes common is literally the name of the language, which like, what? Uh, and other times it's just sort of, you know, well, we say common, but what we mean is like French or whatever, you know, fantasy French is the universal language of our world that most people speak. If you know, it's the traitor's language, perhaps, uh, you know, traitors bring it all over the show. So we all speak it kind of like how the British Empire forced the English tongue across uh, the globe so that everybody could speak to them while they were like saying, you know, give us your stuff. We have not earned it. <laughs> and that's fine. I get it. I get while, you know, when you're writing a story where you want to have a character who travels around and meets people from all kinds of interesting places, I get how it would be tedious to feel like you have to over and over again write about how your character, like, learns their language painfully over a long period, or if you have to write over and over again scenes where your character doesn't know how to speak the language, so they just kind of use hand signals or whatever, however they get by. It denies you options in that regard, right? You, you can't have them have deeper conversations if they don't understand each other's language, presumably. 
So the heck with it. Let's have the common tongue or in science fiction, let's have a universal translator or in fantasy, let's have a universal translator, maybe some kind of weird worm you stick in your ear or some magic amulet, whatever. Something that just goes, yeah, whatever, like, let's just have everybody talk to each other. This story is not about the difficulties of language and communication. For heaven's sakes, please and thank you. Let's just get to fighting the dragon. I get it. I totally get it. In a similar vein, most sword and sorcery uh, that I have read, particularly of the classic stuff, has characters who do have to learn languages. They don't go out and find a common tongue or a translator thingy. But you will find over time as you read more and more uh, Conan stories or, you know, uh, Fafnir and Green Mouse or uh, Elric, they have a real knack for learning languages. Boy, howdy, they can learn a whole language in a paragraph that represents about a week because they've already heard a similar language before uh, off camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so very similar, but I kind of like that a little more, especially because it makes me think of historical fiction, which is a good place to look to for inspiration for sword and sorcery, as I have heard it described over on the excellent sword and sorcery podcast, Rogues in the House. Historical fiction uh, really plays into sword and sorcery in many ways, but one of them is that classic sword and sorcery or earliest stuff is almost always just historical fiction with a twist with a wizard or whatever so it's worth looking at and one of the things you'll find in historical fiction is for example i was just reading a, a contemporary one uh, called the religion by tim willock and that all takes place on the island of malta pretty much and you know it's europe it's real history there's no common tongue there's no universal translator but the characters are western european polyglots most of them can speak Spanish, Italian, French, and in some combination. Uh, then the locals speak Maltese, and a lot of them aren't quite as educated, so they have a harder time communicating with the you know, wide-traveling main characters. But it all works out. It allows you to signify class and education and all kinds of stuff. And sometimes if you want two characters to speak in secret, they'll swap into Italian because they know the third person in the room only, only speaks uh, French and Spanish or whatever. It's a fun tool, and it never gets in the way of the storytelling and it never makes the writer have to write a boring sequence about the main character sitting down for Italian lessons or whatever. And I feel like something like this uh, in a fantasy setting must have happened at least a few times in the stories of Fritz Leiber, his Fafnir and Grey Mouser stories, because they mostly take place in a city called Lankmar, a grand city of massive international trade sitting on the ocean, which surely have a lot of languages kicking around. So I feel like, why not give yourself more options by having multiple languages and avoiding the kind of universal translator common tongue situation, especially because doing so isn't going to force you to have to keep writing characters you don't know what the other one's saying. For this novel, I certainly see it coming up a lot in the first third, where Vo has left the island and has gone to the mainland, whatever that is, and traveling through various places and meeting various peoples. You know, the very first story I want her pardon me, the very first story on the mainland, I want her to run into people who are essentially the, you know, her people. They're who her people are descended from after 300 odd years of being stuck on that island. And I thought, you know, she would speak basically their tongue, but it also would have been developing in isolation. So would that be kind of like right now, if uh, through some time travel, you know, shenanigan, you got to speak to someone who only spoke the king's English from like, three, four hundred years ago, whenever that was precisely, you could understand some bits and pieces, but it would actually be really, really hard to know what the heck the other person is saying. And that could be a fun obstacle for Vo, which will play into some stuff I'll get into when I discuss that story in detail. Then the story after that, I like the idea that maybe she started to pick up some more of the updated vocabulary 
and then gets slung into a situation with people from all over the show. And she has to figure out, like, what is the common tongue, as in what is the tongue of empire? And maybe she has a very limited vocabulary, which could work because that story is going to have a lot to do with like toxic masculinity and aggression. So from the point of view character, because it won't be Vo as the main perspective in that one, from the point of view character's point of view, Vo will speak a little bit like the Hulk. <laughs> that sort of, you know, angry me Tarzan, you Jane, Hulk smash situation would come in handy for that kind of story, I think, and kind of flavoring how we see Vo and her whole situation. And Past that, well, we'll see what happens. I have a few more ideas and I need to get into them right now, but certainly the first third of the book, then the middle of the book, I love the idea of her becoming a polyglot, learning a bunch of different languages as she travels much further and meets far more people and spends a lot of time in my take on Lankmar, whatever that's going to be. By the final third, where I have her going to, like, almost other worlds and things like that, well, I may have to give in from time to time to the temptation for some kind of universal translator. We'll see, though. It'll be an interesting personal challenge, I think, to avoid that as long as I possibly can. Language as world building is something I could probably fill a whole nother hour talking about, but I think that's good for now. You get the idea. Let's move on to language as the actual prose, the actual language on the page. I'm going to talk first a little bit about Robert Howard, the granddaddy of sword and sorcery, and his use of language, which is often discussed, spoken about, and studied, and then a wee bit about some of the other sword and sorcery names worth paying attention to, before I talk a little bit about my own use of prose and how I want to change how I think about it and improve my use of it in the book, which, I won't lie, is something that makes me probably about as nervous as anything I'm going to talk about in this episode, and in this episode I'll be talking about racism. Yeah, there's a subject where you, people never misspeak, and uh, ooh. Uh, yeah, no, 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 it makes me very nervous because it makes me concerned that I will reveal myself as an idiot. Uh, let's find out. Is Oliver an idiot? Well, let's talk about Robert Howard first, who was, you know, a lot of things, but I don't think he was an idiot. <laughs> Now, if you were to ask me to describe his prose off the top of my head, I would use a lot of words I've heard other people use, which includes funny sounding stuff like muscular. Well, how is his prose muscular? What does that mean? Well, when people say that, they tend to mean it does things that they think of as very masculine, like it's very quick moving and powerful sounding and violent, which is all I would say true. But his language is also very poetic and... That's not a traditionally muscular, masculine thing now, is it? So, hmm. yeah, no, Howard uh, was no dummy. Uh, he would say that he didn't really know all the right words, you know, or he didn't know what a trotsky or whatever it was, all the words for actually breaking down poetry. But he obviously had some instinctive understanding of it, something which he would cop to in his letters to his best pen pal there, H.P. Lovecraft. He's also a fan of using lots of adjectives, which is called, I gather from Wikipedia here, <laughs> compound modification, you know, or serial modification if you have like A, B, C, you know, like a whole string of adjectives uh, and adverbs. And uh, so that might get you lines like the saw-edged crescent blade of the Yuechi, where the noun blade is modified with both crescent and saw-edged. And I would count myself definitely as a fan of something else he does, which is similar, where he would have descriptive details as lists, the rapid succession adding to the pace of the prose, for example, flat, flaring nostrils, retreating chin, fangs, no forehead, whatever, great, immensely long arms dangling from sloping, incredible shoulders. Like a lot of pulp and comic book authors uh, from the 20th century, Howard had a good appreciation of a big ape. <laughs> 
He's also a big fan of epithets, the most obvious of these being, you know, the Sumerian when he refers to Conan, and I'm certainly having a bit of fun with that in Vogue when I tried to think of uh, cute things to refer to her as other than Vogue, like when she's in the battle scene and I referred to her as the blue-cloaked battler. A fun form of dialogue that Howard likes to use, which uh, the name of which I've only just learned before recording this, is called flighting, F-L-Y-T-I-N-G, boastful and taunting dialogue preparatory to a physical fight, a device probably borrowed from Shakespeare. For example, Dog, he taunted, you can't hit me, I was not born to die on Hyrcanian steel, try again, pig of Turan. And it's funny that Shakespeare should be mentioned as it, you know, where this was probably borrowed from, because I feel like flighting, as I've just read it to you now, is the kind of dialogue when people want to say, ah, that's corny. <laughs> like, this is a line they would think of as corny, which is a shame, because I think it's really fun. You just got to let yourself enjoy it, you know? A rhetorical device that Howard liked was something called the tricolon, a sentence with three clearly defined parts. It would often be used in combination with other tools in which conjunctions are either removed entirely or repeated in close succession. For example, the line, fold after slimy fold, knotting about him, twisting, crushing, killing him, is, you know, that twisting, crushing, killing him bit, what you'd call an asyndectic tricolon. While the following line, then it fell, shearing through the scales and flesh and vertebrae, is a polysyndetic tricolon. Yeah, now if you, can't, if you couldn't tell, <laughs> I was just reading Wikipedia there because I was like, how can I phrase this in a way that... But I, I really like it. I mean, you don't really need to know words like asyndeton and polysyndeton and so on and so forth to understand what he's doing there. It's this kind of form of really heavy emphasis with a rhythm to it. And I really like that, even if I had to read Wikipedia to you to know the precise terminology. Now, he does other things which I wouldn't need Wikipedia to tell you about. For example, he's a big fan of alliteration, which I like but I often feel like I've heard someone tell me or read some writing advice that like, alliteration is the tool of a poltroon, a fool, a buffoon, somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, uh, somebody who's trying to show off, which I think is a shame because I think it can be done well. I like the example they have here for him. It was forged of a meteor that flashed through the sky like a flaming arrow and fell in a far valley. You know, you've got that F repeating, forged, flashed, flaming, fell, far and then even a repetition of double L with L in fell and L in L uh, in valley. And I like that. I think alliteration when it sounds really junky is when like literally four or five words in a row all have the same starting letter as opposed to just several spaced rhythmically throughout a sentence like the one I just read to you. And then there's the poetry side of things when it comes to his language, which, you know, Wikipedia goes on here about how, you know, the meter used by Howard in his poetry creates a sense of motion. There's a whole bunch of other specific terms like Trotsky and stressed syllable, which I have to go back to a book I own on poetry to remember the meanings of half the time. And I would love to understand those things more to use them as tools in my own writing. I do think there is serious value in understanding poetry. It's just unfortunate that my life isn't such that I have need to think about those words very often, even as someone who writes. And as I alluded to earlier, it would seem that Howard felt similarly. Um, yeah, here's that letter to H.P. Lovecraft uh, quotation there uh, about that, where Howard speaks, I know nothing of the mechanics of poetry. I couldn't tell you if a line was anapestic or trochaic to save my life. I write the stuff by ear, so to speak, and my musical ear is very full of flaws. Wikipedia then is nice to him by continuing with how, nevertheless, the rhythm, stress, and intonation are present in his works regardless of his knowledge of the correct nomenclature. And, well, this is where I feel a bit of a kinship with Howard in the sense that you know, I even have uh, an English degree, just a bachelor with honors, but still, I've gone to school to study the language, 
and it was my, you know, number one subject in high school, but grammar was not my jam really, unfortunately. And in my day-to-day life, well, you know, I I don't write for a living as of this recording, question mark. Maybe that will change. I would like it to. I would love to be able to write for a living and make it mostly what I do so that there'd be more incentive and more time for me to learn these kinds of terms and really better understand them and how to use them in my writing. But as someone who does not do it for a living, that means my time is very limited and I have my brain full of a whole bunch of other stuff I need to know in order to keep a roof over my head. Plus, to be honest, I'm still kind of learning to find pleasure in knowing these things. Prior to not that long ago, 99% of my pleasure in writing was the crafting of plot and character and theme and mood and all that kind of stuff. You know, the story, so to speak, whereas the bits and pieces I'm assembling the story out of, I'm I'm learning to love them. I've been learning to love them for not very long now. <laughs> so yes, we've reached the part where I worry I've revealed myself to be an idiot. I'll let you be the judge. I'll finish this little bit of talking about Howard and his use of language by saying two more things. The first is that if you really want to learn about his prose in detail, other than, of course, reading his stuff, I again would point you towards the book Flame and Crimson, A History of Sword and Sorcery by Brian Murphy, which gets into more detail and is a lot more fun and readable, I think, than the Wikipedia that I just drew from there. So yeah, I'd recommend that book again. And then um, I already read a chunk of him back in episode four of the podcast, uh, right after the credits there from the People of the Black Circle. But I feel like I can read a little bit at the beginning of one of the other most well-known Conan stories, The Tower of the Elephant, an opening paragraph that illustrates something else about his prose, which is he loves to open his stories not with exposition, but by kind of almost doing a very cinematic thing, having the camera come into a situation already happening. Here we go. The first paragraph from The Tower of the Elephant by Robert Howard. Torches flared murkily on the revels in the mall, where the thieves of the East held carnival by night. In the mall, they could carouse and roar as they liked, for honest people shunned the quarters, and watchmen, well paid with stained coins, did not interfere with their sport. Along the crooked, unpaved streets with their heaps of refuse and sloppy puddles, Drunken roisterers staggered, roaring. Steel glinted in the shadows where arose the shrill laughter of women and the sounds of scufflings and strugglings. Torchlight licked luridly from broken windows and wide-thrown doors, and out of those doors, stale smells of wine and rank, sweaty bodies, clamor of drinking jacks and fists hammered on rough tables, snatches of obscene songs rushed like a blow in the face. Alright, it would be exhausting if I went into the same level of detail discussing each of the authors I want to share with you now as I did with Howard, so instead um, I'm just going to let a few paragraphs, one from each author, similar to the one I just read from Howard where we have the story opening into a scene or a character entering a new location kind of thing, and you can enjoy comparing the way they sound as I pour it into your ears. (laughs) Alright, we're going to start with C.L. Moore, uh, one of Howard's contemporaries, uh, who is noteworthy for many reasons beyond the fact that she is one of the rare female sword and sorcery authors from the 20th century. Her contribution was the character Jirel Ojori, a French knight uh, from, I want to say, the 1400s. And even though she was set in ostensibly the real world, her stories very quickly would pull her out of it and put her in very fantastic places. In the most well-known of those stories, Black God's Kiss, 
I'm going to read you from a little bit into the story here, where basically there's a guy named Gillian who has wronged her and uh, conquered her and beat her army, and she is on a quest into a dark and terrible place of strangeness in seeking a weapon with which to take her vengeance on Gillian. It reads as follows. She had half expected, despite her brave words, to come out upon the storied and familiar red-hot pave of hell, and this pleasant, starlit land surprised her and made her more wary. The things that built the tunnel could not have been human. She had no right to expect men here. She was a little stunned by finding open sky so far underground, though she was intelligent enough to realize that however she had come, she was not underground now. No cavity in the earth could contain this starry sky. She came of a credulous age, and she accepted her surroundings without too much questioning, though she was a little disappointed, if the truth were known, in the pleasantness of the mistily starlit place. The fiery streets of hell would have been a likelier locality in which to find a weapon against Gilliam. I do appreciate how, even though this is a paragraph describing, you know, a scene, we are getting a bit of Jarell's personality, even in that description, as we hear mentioned, that she's kind of disappointed. Like, why is this so nice? I came here to get something to kill a mother effer with, and, uh, and it just seems kind of too cheery around here. It should be like hell to find something to kill that guy I hate. <laughs> her her sort of hatred and indomitable will are definitely, I would say, the strongest parts of Jarell, and they often get her through things where her sword arm cannot. Another contemporary of Howard's that I'll mention before we move up in the years is Clark Ashton Smith. He also was in touch with H.P. Lovecraft and borrowed, and you know, with his permission, various names of gods and places and so on that Howard also used, that Lovecraft also used. And sometimes you're not sure where, you know, any one thing originated. He has a very florid style. He is not like Howard. And to demonstrate that, I'm going to read to you the opening paragraph of a very short, short story, which I highly recommend. It's free online, like a lot of Clark Ashton Smith's writings. The Tale of Satampra Zeros. I, Satampra Zeros of Alzadarum, shall write with my left hand since I no longer have any other. The tale of everything that befell Tiruv Umpalus and myself in the shrine of the god Tithagua, which lies neglected by the worship of man in the jungle-taken suburbs of Kumorayam, that long-deserted capital of the Hyperborean rulers. I shall write it with the violet juice of the savannah palm, which turns to a blood-red rubric with the passage of years, on a strong vellum that is made from the skin of the mastodon, as a warning to all good thieves and adventurers who may hear some lying legend of the lost treasures of Kumorayam and be tempted thereby." Love it. And there you go. Whereas like Howard greeted you with a bunch of very quick and relatable kind of like, yeah, there's dark alleys, there's an inn, there's somebody shouting, there's the sounds of parties, whatever. This guy, I mean, not only is he directly addressing you, but he's throwing out a whole bunch of crazy names for gods, places, peoples. And he's really, you know, laying on the, the drama here with the blood red rubric. Oh, that feels good around the tongue, doesn't it? The blood red rubric uh, of, you know, the the, the, the the juice I'm writing this in is going to turn so nasty. But let me tell you, <laughs> and I'm going to write it on the skin of a friggin' mastodon. Let me tell you. Uh, so yeah, no, I really recommend his stuff. It's very over the top, you could say, but that's what you came for if you're reading his stuff. 
I gather many have tried to imitate his prose. Very few, if anybody, has managed to succeed in doing so in a way that is actually pleasurable to read. I don't know if I'm going to tilt at that windmill in Vaux, uh, in Untitled Sword and Sorcery uh, novel. We'll see. It's not in my plans. However, uh, before I move on, I will recommend to you, yes, The Tale of Satan Zeros, and also I would really strongly recommend another story of his called the Dark Eidolon, E-I-D-O-L-O-N, The Dark Eidolon. If I remember, I'll link to it in the show notes, which is a uh, part of his most well-known set of stories, the Zothique cycle. Zothique being the last continent on Earth in an impossibly far future where the sun no longer shines in its prime. Which brings me to Jack Vance, who is known for a lot of writing. He was prolific, but I would say primarily for his four-book series, Tales of the Dying Earth which is set in a very, very impossibly far future where the sun has turned red and the citizens of the earth, which has way too much history to even attempt to keep track of, are all kind of like, oh, that could go out any moment. <laughs> and it changes very much how they live. And I'm going to actually leap ahead, though. The very first book came out in 1950, which is a collection of short stories, very much worth reading, but they read to me a little bit too much like, well, like anybody, really. I mean, you can see stuff like any, when you look at the earlier works of uh, any author, you can see the promise of what they become. But if I were to read to you something from those first stories, I think it would sound too similar to what I've already read. Instead, I'm going to leap ahead to the mid 80s, where he wrote the last book, Rialto the Marvelous, which is all about the titular Rialto, you know, who's a magician in this very far future, where magic and science, I mean, what's the difference, right? And uh, this sort of gentleman's club of magicians and how they're all very petty with each other while dealing with incredibly highfalutin things involving time and space because they can. Like Clark Ashton Smith, Jack Vance likes to have a lot of, you know, made up terms for names and places and things and weird stuff because he's got this impossibly huge history of this world to draw from that he's created. And the tone, though, is very different. Well, here, let me read you the very beginning of the very first story of Rialto the Marvelous. The Mirth, M-U-R-T-H-E, The Mirth. One cool morning toward the middle of the 21st aeon, Rialto sat at breakfast in the east cupola of his manse, Falu. On this particular morning, the old sun rose behind a curtain of frosty haze to cast a wan and poignant light across low meadow. For reasons Rialto could not define, he lacked appetite for his breakfast and gave only desultory attention to a dish of watercress, stewed persimmon, and sausage in favor of strong tea and a rusk. Then, despite a dozen tasks awaiting him in his workroom, he sat back in his chair to gaze absently across the meadow toward rare woods. In this mood of abstraction, his perceptions remained strangely sensitive. An insect settled upon the leaf of a nearby aspen tree. Rialto took careful note of the angle at which it crooked its legs, and the myriad red glints in its bulging eyes. Interesting and significant, thought Rialto. After absorbing the insect's full import, Rialto extended his attention to the landscape at large. He contemplated the slope of the meadow as it dropped toward the capital T's and the distribution of its herbs. He studied the crooked bowls at the edge of the forest, the red rays slanting through the foliage, the indigo and dark green of the shadows. His vision was remarkable for its absolute clarity, his hearing was no less acute. He leaned forward, straining to hear... What? Sighs of inaudible music. Well, that was very relaxed <laughs> compared to the previous authors I read, right? This was definitely not Howard or Ashton Smith or um, C.L. Moore grabbing you by the collar and being like, check out this stuff. 
This is very languid and the language goes along with that. I find there's a kind of distance created by the language of Jack Vance most of the time, whereby even if things are happening very quickly and farcically as it tends to be the case with his stuff, he loves a good farce, especially in the two middle books, I always feel like I'm watching theatre. There's a bit of a distance between me and what I'm reading, with the exception of the finale of the third book. But yeah, there's always exceptions to broad statements. Point is, yeah, his language is a bit more having fun with things and just being kind of, yeah, here's the deal, whatever. And he loves, he is very much known for this, he loves picking out the oldest, most specific words you can find and honestly making them up a lot of the time. I frequently would be Googling stuff in the book and be like, there's no, this is not a word. <laughs> you know, I'd ask my partner who's got a PhD. She's not dumb. And I'd be like, do you know this word? <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah. He's very fun with the way he plays a language that way. Okay, two more quickly, then we're going to move on to race. As I said, Jack Vance's first entry in the Dying Earth series came in 1950, which was roughly between the Golden Age and Silver Ages, as you could think of them, of sword and sorcery, the sort of 30s and 40s, and the revival in the 60s and 70s. A man whose work straddles those periods, but is mostly known for stuff published in the 60s and 70s, is Fritz Library. Yes, I've mentioned him many times with his characters Fafford and Grey Mouser, the big guy, little guy team of thieves, which uh, basically made his name. And I'm going to go to the opening of the third story in the chronological order of their lives, which is not the same as the order in which the stories were written by far. It is called Ill Met in Lankmar, where if you're reading things in chronological order, you've had one story about Fafford and one story about Grey Mouser. They're kind of origin stories. But really, like, you could start here, I think, Ill Met in Lankmar, and we're going to be introduced to the city in a similar way that Howard's excerpt I read introduced us to the city where we're going to see you know, Conan in a bar and go from that story. So yeah, Ilmet and Lankmar. Silent as specters, the tall and the fat thief edged past the dead, noose-strangled, watch-leopard, out the thick, lock-picked door of Jengao the gem merchant, and strolled east on Cash Street through the thin, black night smog of Lankmar, city of seven score thousand smokes. East on Cash it had to be, for west at the intersection of Cash and Silver was a police post with unbribed guardsmen in browned iron cuirasses and helms, restlessly grounding and rattling their pikes, while Jengao's place had no alley entrance or even window in its stone walls three spans thick, and the roof and floor almost as strong and without trap doors. But tall, tight-lipped Slevias, master thief candidate and fat, darting-eyed Fissif, Thief second class, breveted first class for this operation, with a rating of talented and double-dealing, were not in the least worried. Everything was proceeding according to plan. Each carried thonged in his pouch a much smaller pouch of jewels of the first water only, for Jingao, now breathing stertorously inside and senseless from the slugging he'd suffered, must be allowed, nay, nursed and encouraged, to build up his business again and so ripen it for another plucking. Almost the first law of the thieves' guild was never kill the hen that laid brown eggs with a ruby in the yolk, or white eggs with a diamond in the white. First off, I love the fact that we're set up by the origin stories to want to read about, you know, big guy, little guy team, Fafford and Grey Mouser, and we get a different big guy, little guy team. Fafford and Grey Mouser wind up robbing, and then they meet while they're, you know, because they both independently decided to rob these guys. Okay, I'll talk lots about Fritz Library later when I get into the part of the book where I will be in some ways riffing off of Fafford and Grey Mouser, so let's move quickly over to his contemporary from the 70s, the last one I'm going to read from here, Michael Moorcock, who did a lot of great stuff. Relevant to this, he wrote Elric of Melnibone, 
which is the name of the volume I hold in my hand, although it was originally published in 72 as The Dreaming City, and it is the chronological beginning of Elric's saga, which, as you're noticing, a trend here, I think, uh, did not actually begin at the beginning. <laughs> but let's do that ourselves here as we meet Elric. Chapter 1. A melancholy king, a court, strives to honor him. It is the color of a bleached skull, his flesh, and the long hair which flows below his shoulders is milk-white. From the tapering, beautiful head stare two slanting eyes, crimson and moody, and from the loose sleeves of his yellow gown emerge two slender hands, also the color of bone, resting on each arm of a seat which has been carved from a single massive ruby. The crimson eyes are troubled, and sometimes one hand will rise to finger the light helm which sits upon the white locks, a helm made from some dark, greenish alloy, and exquisitely molded into the likeness of a dragon about to take wing. And on the hand, which absently caresses the crown, there is a ring in which is set a single rare Actorios stone, whose core sometimes shifts sluggishly and reshapes itself as if it were sentient smoke, and is restless in its jeweled prison as the young albino on his ruby throne. Okay, right off the bat, I liked that little bit of rhyme. I'd forgotten about it, where you have uh, him being described uh, as uh, his eyes as uh, slant, two slanting eyes, crimson and moody, blah, 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 a seat which has been carved from a single massive ruby. That has a nice touch to it. Yeah, I mean, Moorcock definitely thinks hard about his sentences, and it shows. Uh, he's English, uh, for everyone to say about how that has an influence on things. He definitely was someone who would have grown up with a classical education and Shakespeare and all that stuff. So yeah, there's a few samples for you. Howard, C.L. Moore, Clark Ashton Smith, Jack Vance, Fritz Leiber, and Michael Moorcock. There are many other names in the sword and sorcery genre, but these are some of the biggest and definitely the ones that I'm going to mostly have on my mind while I'm writing this book. And it's their prose that I have read and reread in some cases that has been filtering into my head as I'm going to be going into crafting my own. I think I'll double back on this subject at some point in the future when I've actually gone cracking on the writing of the book beyond the first short story, when hopefully all of this study and outlining and intention will have translated into results. Plus, there's the whole thing of, well, what's me and my voice and my prose? I read a bunch of it last time, but... Yeah, it's, I find it too hard to describe my own stuff right now. I think I need to practice studying the actual like prose of other authors and that I might be better able to read my own. I've studied the heck out of story, but I've got to study prose, I think, a little more before I can do that. At the moment, trying to describe my own prose would feel like trying to leap backwards fast enough to see myself. Okay, time for the much shorter second half of this episode of Language and Race. Race! <laughs> Hooray! Who, who doesn't love race? As it relates to writing sword and sorcery, there is, of course, racism, which is something you just have to face up to if you want to study these old works. I've said before, they, you know, Howard was a man in Texas in the 30s. Like, what do you think? You know, I would say, based on what I've read and what I've seen people who really study his works say, that he was about on par for his day as was C.L. Moore and, you know, arguably other authors, as opposed to, say, H.P. Lovecraft, who was incandescently racist to the point that even Howard was like, hey, come on, man, I'm a, I'm a guy from Texas in the 30s, what are you doing? <laughs> my contemporary who was also in the 30s, but you get my point, right? 
Yeah, there's la- there's levels and layers and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, obviously you can do what I, I think I've said uh, in the first episode where I talked about sword and sorcery and how some of the older material is dodgy in the respect of how race is treated, of how characters of color are described and that kind of thing. Well, don't do it. <laughs> don't do that. Don't be racist. There we go. I solved racism. Don't do it. Uh, but what I mean is <laughs> if you're a writer looking to write the stuff, you know, don't carry that forward and be aware of it. Be mindful of it because it might be too easy in imitating the form to unconsciously, unintentionally carry across certain essentialist things that are less obvious than using, I don't know, the N-word. For readers in general, I would just say beware, you're going to run into it, especially in the early stuff. It largely, no, it doesn't largely vanish. It comparatively largely vanishes once you get to the Silver Age in the 60s and 70s, but it's still the 60s and 70s. And, you know, some authors are pretty still awful. Actually, I honestly found Lynn Carter to be pretty bad for the whole racial thing in ways he focuses on it more than Howard did in the 30s. So, like, what the heck, man? And even generally very progressive uh, individuals like Michael Moorcock are still of the era in which they're writing, the 60s and 70s. So yeah, just be aware of it. And if you are a person of color reading these old stories, heads up. You know, you may still be able to enjoy them, you may not. That is a personal preference for which I think no one should ever judge anybody. If something makes you uncomfortable, that's it. You're legit to be made uncomfortable by it. Anyway, point is, uh, it's good to keep an eye on this kind of thing when it comes to reading and writing sword and sorcery, and that's all I'm going to say because at the end of the day, I'm a white guy, I don't feel I have a lot to add to the subject that others haven't already said. Something where I feel a bit more comfortable, though, and something which race as racism, as, as you know, skin color, whatever, essentialism, all that stuff, that can play into, though, is race as fantasy world building, right? Like, we got our dwarves, and we got our elves, and we got our this, and we got our that. Now, in sword and sorcery in general, particularly the Golden Age and Silver Age stuff that I've read, you don't have elves and dwarves and whatnot. You don't have what in Dungeons and Dragons you might refer to as a demi-human, basically humans, but, you know, something else stuck on their forehead or different ears or they're shorter or whatever, and they have one dominant characteristic, like the elves are all snooty and the dwarves are all kind of grumbly or whatever. Yeah, that doesn't exist. What does exist is a lot more sort of ethnic essentialism. So you might have Conan come out with a line like, only a Turanian could have made that shot with his bow and arrow because they're all good at that. And that can be very fun to play with because it's a shorthand from you to the reader. It's just like, yeah, these people, well, they're generally like this. Like, you get the idea. And of course, we see this all the time in sci-fi with alien races. I mean, we're all familiar with Star Trek's panoply of people who have something stuck in their forehead and they're the warriors or they're the this or they're the that. Or they're the Ferengi, the massive collection of anti-Semitic stereotypes. Which brings me back for a moment to what I was saying about racism and race in general and the more way we think of it in our day-to-day lives. Uh, In the writing, you know, even if you're creating the hobdabobs from doop doop doo and they look like this and they do that, just check yourself. You never know what you might be doing without entirely realizing that you're doing it or you might be doing something thinking, oh, well, it's fun satire or whatever and it's a stage removed. Well, yeah, still. Meanwhile, there's endless essays with, I think, some merit about the racial hierarchy in Lord of the Rings and how it plays out over the racial and class hierarchies of our real lived world and reinforces some pretty not great ideas. So, yeah, but this is a sword and sorcery novel, not a high fantasy novel, not a sci-fi novel. And in sword and sorcery, yeah, as I say, it tends to be more about nationalities and ethnicities. And as long as you can avoid, you know, doing terrible descriptions, you can get into some fun stuff about different cultures. I mean, cultures are interesting, I think. So maybe cultures are more the thing to talk about than race. But as I say, race is part of the history of the genre and something to consider going forward. I'm repeating myself. Let's move on. Um, 
yeah, the thing about, like, only a Terranian could have made that shot, it's so good, brings me to a neat note on world building that I found on Twitter and I wrote in my denim notebook. Unfortunately, I didn't do what I normally do, which is credit the person, so my apologies, person on Twitter. If you hear this and you know who the person is that I'm quoting, let me know. I'd love to give them credit. So yeah, here's what that person wrote. On world building. You can't just say something in the narrative like, the people of the southern steppes are fierce yet loyal. You have to anchor that statement in a particular character's worldview. Most world building is done wrong. It's done in an attempt to establish certain facts about the world. It's done in such a way as to render the world legible and orderly and logical. But we don't experience the world as a collection of facts. We experience it as a set of habits and beliefs which we might not always understand. We don't agree on how the world works or what its rules are. So if you can sell a created world with the same uncertainty, it seems a lot smarter, more true. And then I paraphrase a bit here in my notes. To the the people of the southern steppes are fierce yet loyal thing above a knight who enforces the king's laws and sees the people of the southern steppes as a category in the king's senses. Well, you know, they might say that but someone from another part of the world will see them differently and disagree on that take, and maybe we get to meet them as well, and so on and so forth. I really like this idea, even though I must admit when people say something really absolute, like, most world building is done wrong, like, absolutist writing advice always makes me get my hackles up a little bit, but I really like this advice, because if you are grounding what a people, quote-unquote, are by one person's opinion and then you ground it in someone else's point of view and so on and so forth instead of the omniscient god narrator saying they are at their core this you know all klingons are warlike that's just the deal then you make them more interesting more varied and you also avoid the essentialism which can easily lend itself to either just two-dimensional uh, peoples you know if everybody from a place is all thinking the same right like i said earlier and perhaps uh, certainly lower the odds of you coming up with what is actually kind of an unintentional or intentional metaphor for real people in life that you want to flatten out or unintentionally flatten out as just being all one thing, which is never great, even if it's a quote-unquote flattering thing. I also like the way Sword and Sorcery tends to think about culture and ethnicity more because a lot of the time when you're into a fantasy race in something, it's it's not really their their appearance that's what you like, at least in my experience. I don't find the fact that dwarves are short, bearded, and strong interesting. If I find them interesting in a story, it's usually because of their culture. Same thing with elves, same thing with most fantasy species. And even when there's something biologically very different about them that makes them much more than humans with some sort of pointy ears or shorter legs or whatever, then what interests me is how that affects their culture, right? So yeah, I think this whole thing about race and fantasy can really be winnowed down to just trying to be mindful of the racisms and thinking more along lines of ethnicity and culture and how many individuals see those ethnicities and cultures from many different perspectives inside and without. You know, uh, so my plans thus far are very much to follow the sword and sorcery model and have uh, the classic sword and sorcery model and have just humans charging around in terms of like full-on cultures and nations and that kind of thing for at least the first third, probably the first two-thirds of the book. That has a likelihood to change in at least one story I'm thinking of for the last third of the book. But if I do that, and in the one instance I want to do it, 
it's going to come down to, again, the cultural thing. I've got an idea for some very deep underground people who, you know, it's so hard for them to find food that if you were to ask a group of them who's in charge, what they would do is they would all kind of rub their stomachs and figure out who is the most full because whoever is the most full in this food-scarce environment is in charge for the moment because they seem to be the wisest, right? So something like that I might do, but I don't want to do like, oh, they looked vaguely... um this ethnicity from real life, and as a result, uh, they're all sneaky. <laughs> no thank you. Alright, time for the listener question, which came to me via Twitter from at Korivak, K-O-R-I-V-A-K, also known as Matt DeBarth. To give you a brief break from the sound of my voice, here's Matt's question read by my partner, Sasha. I love short stories, so the structure you're planning sounds great. I know you've talked about it some already, but I'd love to hear more. Roughly how many are you aiming for? Will there be variety in length and tone? Thanks for your question, Matt, and thank you, Sasha, for reading it. Quick refresher, the novel will be a short story cycle taking place across about 15 years of Vo's life. I have a section of the Denim Notebook where I figured out the details of this, which stories will be going into which third of the book, and I'll be doing an episode soon on the details of how I chose those stories and all that kind of thing. So here I will just say I'm currently looking at 17 stories, and yes, they will vary in length and tone. I feel it's important to vary in both length and tone to avoid monotony, right? If the whole book is really, 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 really grim, yeah. Well, I think I've said that before about the actual you know moments within the stories and how I write in general. Even the darkest stories tend to have a bit of humor because without a variance, it all just sort of smears together and it's harder to make anyone moment pop. In a broader way, I think the length of chapters or stories also plays into this if they're all exactly the same. If I made every single short story 5,000 words, give or take a few syllables, then yeah, you would kind of get start to get this feeling when you know you're coming around to the ending, and that would change your expectations of the story you're reading. All right, Matt, thanks again for your question. I hope that answers it in sufficient detail for now. Like I say, there will be an episode where I'll be delving much deeper into the overall architecture and how I chose each story and roughly what length some of them will be, actually. As I'm recording this, I genuinely can't decide what the next episode is going to be about. I've got a few topics here, and that's one of them. I may also talk about lessons for Vo as she grows over the course of all three thirds of the book. All three of them. And I might also talk about research and how I go about that for the novel. So, yeah, maybe I'll talk about something I can't even think of right now. We'll find out next time. So, I'm writing a novel. Features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show doesn't have to be fancy. Using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a novel where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.